This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Senpei, an assistant professor at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. We'll be discussing challenges in forecasting antimicrobial resistance. Welcome, Dr. Pei. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to have you here. How does antimicrobial resistance happen? Antimicrobial resistance occurs when pathogens evolve in a way that allows them to survive exposure to antimicrobial drugs that would normally kill them or inhibit their growth. The overuse and misuse of antibiotics are the major drivers of antimicrobial resistance. So when pathogens are exposed to the drug more frequently, some may develop mutations that allow them to survive treatment. So you can see it's really a combination of the mutations of pathogens and the selection pressure that gave rise to antimicrobial resistance. How big a problem is it? Do people die from it? Yes, of course. AMR is a big problem, certainly. And AMR is an urgent global health, public health problem. In a global burden study, researchers estimate that in 2019 alone, over 1 million deaths were directly caused by AMR bacterial infections. And about 5 million deaths were related to bacterial AMR. So it's really urgent and big problem. Are there certain microbes that are more likely to become resistant than others? Yes. So the likelihood of resistance developing depends on several factors, which include uh, the features of microbes, the type of drug use, and the frequency and duration of drug exposure. For example, uh, bacteria such as Staph aureus, E. coli, Klebsiella, and the Pseudomonas are known to develop resistance to antibiotics relatively quickly. So those are some of the high-priority AMR bacteria in healthcare settings. If a microbe becomes resistant to a certain treatment, can't we just use a different treatment or antibiotic or something? In theory, yes. It is possible to develop new treatments for infections caused by those resistant microbes. However, developing new antimicrobial drugs is a complex and very challenging process that can take many years and require significant investment. And additionally, um, even when new treatments are developed, resistance can still emerge over time because it's an arm race between drugs and resistance. So, and also because over the last few decades, there are a lot of antibiotic drugs poured, it's, it's becoming increasingly difficult to develop new treatments for those antimicrobial resistant pathogens. Does AMR only affect people, or does it affect animal health as well, and do they affect each other? <laughs> yeah, AMR affects both people and animal health. So AMR pathogens causing infections in people can also infect animals and vice versa. So those two are kind of interconnected, so we really need to take a One Health perspective to control AMR. The use of antibiotics in animal agriculture is a significant contributor to the development of AMR. So the use of antibiotics in animals can lead to the development of resistant bacteria in animal populations, which can then spread to humans through the food chain, direct contact with those animals, or environmental contamination. So it affects both people and animals. Are there certain populations or places, such as community levels versus, say, hospital settings that are more at risk for AMR? Yes. 
definitely certain populations or places are maybe at a higher risk, for instance, in healthcare settings, long-term care facilities, and communities with high antibiotic use and communities with a high prevalence of infectious disease. I mean, those places typically, for instance, in hospital settings and the long-term care facilities, people living there are relatively vulnerable to AMR infections. If they were get infected, the outcome would be very severe. And then in communities, and also in those places, the use of antibiotics is really high, right? So it could be the places where resistance can emerge and spread to the broader community. So those places with a higher use of antibiotics may be at more risk at EMR. Help me understand this a little bit. This is a sort of a widespread community thing. And are people who like have a history of taking a lot of antibiotics more at risk than people who say only take one once or twice a year or maybe haven't had one in a long time? Yes, of course. There are several risk factors associated with increased AMR infections. And the frequent use of antibiotics is one of those. If people take antibiotics regularly or frequently, there's a higher risk of those people getting infected by AMR pathogens. I see. Okay. Are there specific countries where AMR is more of an issue? Different pathogens have different prevalence. It really depends on what kind of pathogens we are talking about. For instance, for aureus, the type of bacteria, resistance was generally highest in countries in North Africa or the Middle East. For multidrug-resistant TB, another pathogen, another bacteria, resistance was highest in East Europe. So it really depends on what kind of pathogen we are talking about. Also, countries with weaker healthcare systems and infrastructures may have heavier burdens due to a lack of resources for infection control and tracking and also treatment. Basically, it's a global problem, but the issue could be more severe in certain countries, depending on the, bacteria, on the pathogens we're talking about. Yeah. What's been done or can be done to slow AMR spread? So the major driver of AMR is antibiotic misuse or overuse, right? So the most important measure to slow down AMR spread is to reduce overuse or misuse of antibiotics. Many countries have implemented antibiotic stewardship programs. Antibiotics and other drugs should only be used when necessary, and the healthcare providers should prescribe them appropriately. So, for instance, when you get a flu infection, usually you will not antibiotics not effective because it's treating a bacteria, but flu is a virus. A lot of people they took antibiotics when they get flu infection, which is not appropriate. Those are a kind of misuse of antibiotics. In healthcare settings, many hospitals use a search and the destroyer policy. So typically involves screening of patients, isolation of the patients who tested positive, and the decontamination of the environment. So those kind of measures can slow down the spread of AMR pathogens within healthcare facilities and settings, which is also helpful to reduce the the mortality and the morbidity associated with AMR infection. Your article is about challenges in AMR forecasting. What is forecasting, and are there different kinds? And tell us about them. Forecasting is a process of making predictions or estimates about future events or conditions or trends based on existing data as well as other factors. We are very familiar with weather forecasts, right? For infectious disease, we aim to estimate future incidence or burden of a disease. 
forecasting, there are different types of forecasting depending on how we classify them. Depending on the forecast horizon, forecasting can be short-term or long-term. We can predict the infection in the next couple of weeks, or we can talk about forecasting a disease burden in the next few decades, right? That's a long-term forecasting. And depending on the methods we use, forecasting could be generated using statistical models, which really captures historical trends or patterns in those disease data, or we can use process-based models, which relies on our understanding on the physical or biological process that produce the data. So, so there are different types of techniques we can use in forecasting. How is AMR forecasted? Yeah, as we mentioned in the paper, currently AMR forecasting methods are very limited because the process is related to AMR is so complex. Most methods can only use statistical methods trend on historical data to look at the, you know, what happened in the past and to use those messages, those information to predict what will happen in the future. For instance, people have used time series methods linking antibiotic consumption to the prevalence of AMR in the society. So those models were mostly used within specific facilities, within the hospital, even they have access to those data, right, to make those predictions, but have not been widely used operationally in real time. You know, we heard a lot about the forecast in COVID-19, which is open to the public, but that, that kind of applications is very limited for EMR right now. What about forecasting on population level versus facility level scales? What's the same forecasting methods that are applied? Are they different or the same for each? Yeah, forecasting for MR at population level and facility levels, and they have different target utilities. For the population level, you really want to look at the prevalence and the trends of AMR in the general population, like what the percentage of those bacteria become resistant, right? And it can support our situational awareness of AMR, or what, what's happening, is AMR going up or going down? But at the facility level, when we make predictions in the specific hospital, we usually focus on the clinical infections with symptoms, like the infected people. It can help us to control AMR transmission within those healthcare settings and to improve treatment of patients. So they have a different purposes and utilities at different levels. And theoretically, we can use the same mathematical or statistical methods to generate the forecast. However, the data sources, the populations, and the processes are very different at the population and facility level. So usually, we usually treat them as separate forecasting questions and look at them differently. So far, infectious disease forecasting apparently has been mostly focused on viral infections and not bacterial AMR. Is there a reason for this? Actually, there are a couple of reasons for this. The first one is the surveillance and data availability for viral infections are much better than bacterial AMR. So in general, we have a much better understanding of viral infection disease burden. For instance, if we get a code, you can easily get a test to confirm whether caused by influenza or RSV or other different viruses, right? Well, AMR is kind of more it's difficult to do that because many of the bacteria are commensals within our human body. So you, people can carry those bacteria without any symptoms. And it's very hard to link the symptoms, the infections, with a specific bacteria 
causing the system. So it's difficult to quantify the burden of AMR. And then secondly, the time scales of outbreaks and their impact on society are very different. So viral infections can spread rapidly and disrupt society when a large number of people get infected at the same time. So think about COVID-19 and other like pandemics right, in the past. So there's a, like, maybe the, the whole the population in the world will be infected within a couple of months. And in contrast, AMR is a very, it's more like a slow burning issue that quietly kills millions of people each year. It is a, an important question, but the disruption on society is less noticeable because it mostly affects vulnerable people like old people. And lastly, our understanding on AMR emergence and spread is still very limited. It is kind of hard to design, you know, process-based models to forecast AMR in the future. While for some viral infections, models have been developed like a few hundred years ago, and people have been working on those models for like centuries. So we have a much better understanding of how viral infection transmits from person to person, but very limited understanding for AMR. With these limitations, what are the public health benefits of forecasting AMR? Yeah, so if we have a better understanding of what will happen in the future about AMR, certainly it can improve our situational awareness of this issue. Like we, we need to know whether staph aureus are developing new type of resistance. Do we need to change our treatment? It can inform the trend of AMR and support some public health policy making, such as how do you prescribe antibiotics, right? Do you need to implement stewardship programs here? And projections based on, there are some other questions we can answer using AMR forecasting. For instance, we can make projections of AMR based on some control scenarios using models so we can know if some control will be more effective than others to make decisions whether we want to take it not. So those kind of forecasting work can inform policymaking, and to reduce, help to reduce the emergence and the spread of AMR in the future. Are there any suggestions as to how the public health and scientific communities can overcome these challenges you've mentioned? Yeah, so there are a couple of things we can do right now. First, I think there should be a better communication between different stakeholders, such as public health officials, academia, healthcare providers, and the general public. Such communications can identify key scientific questions and the data needed to answer these questions, right? And secondly, we need to improve our surveillance and data collection for AMR because we have to get a better understanding of the disease burden and the data are critical to understand those questions. And also, we need to think about how to better use existing data to study scientific questions we can do right now. So mostly, right now, most of the data are kind of siloed within each hospital system because you cannot share those data with other people, with other community. There are some privacy issues, but there may be some ways we can think about how to combine those data to answer questions that can otherwise cannot be answered. And lastly, I think there's a need to form a community to start thinking about how to implement AMR forecasting and to address some initial practical questions on forecasting design. For instance, when we think about forecasting, what variables should we include in those models? What is an appropriate forecasting horizon? Should we make forecasts for the next couple of months or the next couple of years or decades? 
and that's how should those forecasts still be evaluated in real time? Those are some critical practical questions we can start thinking about. I think those efforts we can start working on to address those challenges to forecast EMR. What about further research and studies? Are there anything in particular you think should be done? Yeah, I think the most important research is to study the basic signs, the mechanism, the EMR emergence and spread. There are a lot of people working on this, and if we have a better understanding how EMR emerged and how it spread across population, it can help us to formulate some more specific process-based models to inform forecasting for EMR. And the second area I think we need to do research is to use models to get to guide data collection. So for now, most existing data sets were passively collected. When people get infected, people order a test, and, you know, they collect data for those people. But I think if we want to do some forecasting, we need to collect data more proactively to see, okay, which kind of data are the necessary data to answer scientific questions we need to answer instead of just uh, passively collecting data. And then I think it's important to try to implement those methods and challenge those methods in real-world settings. There's example of forecasting for influenza. Like the CDC has organized the flu forecasting challenge since 2013. So they ask people from different groups generating real-time forecasting and put them online and archive them. And then they will do the evaluation after the season and see what methods work best. So this kind of like stimulated the development of flu forecast in the last decade. I think this kind of work should also be done for EMR. And I think overall, those kind of research spanning both scientific understanding and the data collection and more applied applications of EMR can help to improve and advance this field. Well, Dr. Pei, tell us about your job and how you became interested in forecasting infectious diseases. Yeah, I'm an applied mathematician working in infectious disease and public health. I mostly study the environmental, social, and ecological determinants of infectious diseases. And currently, I mostly work on respiratory diseases such as influenza and COVID-19 and also antimicrobial resistance in healthcare settings. I have an interdisciplinary background in mathematics, complex systems, and infectious disease. So think about how I get into this area. So when I was in my undergraduate in mathematics, I became interested in dynamical systems, which is a branch of mathematics that studies how systems, how things evolve over time following a set of rules or equations. So it has a broad application in real world. And infectious disease is one of the typical dynamical systems, but also with a significant impact on our lives. It becomes very interesting to me when I started my postdoc. I started working on, on public health and infectious disease. I found that, okay, I can apply what I learned in math to solve real-world problems, generate real-time predictions. And also, it's very interesting for forecasting because it's very fascinating because you can test it in real world, right? So you can use your model, you can generate forecasting, and you can see whether the model actually works work or not. And I think this is a fascinating topic that attracts me to work on this for the last like, couple of years. Well, with all that uh, mathematical knowledge, can you apply it to this question? Thinking about all the emerging infectious diseases and 
possible ones. Is there something that worries you the most? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that is really pressing for the global public health. The first one is, as we talk a lot about, is the next pandemic, right? We are still within, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. It's also, you know, it's, it's just becoming endemic. But the emergence of novel pathogens has been increasingly frequent in the last few decades. We have seen so many new viruses jumping from animals to humans and causing those spillover events and causing human-to-human transmission, right? So those are the biggest concern right now. I think most of the people working on public health would agree. I mean, the other area, the other threat I can think about is the EMR, which is the topic we are talking about here today. So EMR is, is a slow-burning problem. You know, it's not causing such a large disturbance on the society, but it kind of kills millions of people each year. And it's projected the number of deaths because of EMR will reach about 10 million people in 2050. So that's a huge problem because we are kind of starting to run out of treatment options for some of those resistant bacteria. If we don't have any treatment, then you can think about the number of deaths because of EMR could be huge. And lastly, I think climate change is also an important uh, threat that changes a lot of things in our life, including public health and infectious disease. Because the change of temperature, precipitation, and other climate factors will change the distribution and the prevalence of many infectious diseases, especially in those you know, low com- middle and low, com- low income countries, which will be disproportionately affected by climate change. So I think overall, I mean, the, the pandemic, MR, and, and climate change are the, are the three major worries I have right now for our global health. Well, on that somewhat not happy thought, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Pei. Thank you so much for having me today. It's really exciting. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the April 2023 article, Challenges in Forecasting Antimicrobial Resistance, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.